What brings you awe? What brings you awe? It might be the Himalayas, but how can that not bring you awe? When you look at the magnitude of those mountains, don't you just want to get on a plane and go and see it for yourself? Or when you hear about something like the Camino, don't you want to walk it and see it for yourself? There's something about stories of awe that evoke a response from us. We want to feel the awe too. Uh, a friend of mine went to Nepal last year and got to hike up base camp and saw the Himalayas for herself. And she said, not only was she blown away by the awe, like just the awe of creation, she was blown away by how creation points to God, how God's love for her, although she's small and insignificant in the universe like an ant, God's love is greater than the mountains, greater than anything we can fathom. It's majestic and more beautiful, and it's available to her. You see, this horizontal awe led her to vertical awe. It led her to awe that God's love could be this splendid, this magnificent, this free and amazing, and it changed her. When she talks about this awe, it it's contagious. You want to experience it for yourself. And the reason I'm bringing up awe is because awe is crucial for our passage today. Where you look for awe will shape the direction of your life. If you think awe is going to be found primarily in the mountains, that's where you're going to be most weekends. That's how you're going to structure your life. If you think awe is going to be found in traveling and seeing more of the world, that's what you're going to make time and space for. If you think awe is found around sharing uh, good food and good company, that's what you're going to prioritize. Awe drives us. And it's not bad to find awe in creation. That's one of the gifts of God, one of the wonders. But the central theme of Hebrews that we've been working through over the past several months is that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's the one thing the author wants us to, to do, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to fix our eyes on Jesus who ran this race for us, who, who endured the cross for the joy set before him, to redeem us, to bring us into God's kingdom as children, fix our eyes on him. And the author concludes this whole buildup by saying last week, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Let's be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. You see, as you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author assumes that awe will be the result. And I'm dwelling on this because we don't understand this. You might walk away from this sermon thinking that Christianity is about moralism or about the rules you can keep or about the instructions we have for people's lives or about trying to impinge on people's freedoms. But that is not the Christian message. The Christian message is that there is nothing you could do to earn God's love. You could never be obedient enough. You could never be faithful enough. And the good news is that he sent his son into the world because he loves us. And Jesus lived the life we could never live and died for us to forgive our sins so we could be welcomed into God's kingdom that cannot be shaken and will be inheritors of an eternal joy that cannot be shaken. That should evoke awe. And if it does, then the author assumes, now let's talk about some of the practical how-tos of faith. And so if you don't have awe before obedience, your obedience will always be twisted into some sort of performance, some sort of effort that you think you have to endure, some sort of earning before God. But when you have awe about what Jesus has done, how much he loves you, how much sacrifice he made for you, awe of moves you into faithfulness. 
And so the big idea I want to explore in our passage this morning is, is this. Your life, your life can express how Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 1. This is the last chapter of this letter. I'm going to be using the NIV translation today because I actually think it, it deals with a few of the technicalities a bit better. We usually use the ESV, but uh, we switch it up once in a while because we're not a cult and we can use whatever pass translation we want. Uh, everything's also going to be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. The author's favorite description of the church in Hebrews is that of a household. Those who have faith in Jesus, those who walk in his ways are a part of God's house, a house that God is pleased to dwell in. And those that you find accompanying you in this house are your family. They're your brothers and sisters. And love is what binds you together. The love of Christ is what has given you entry into the house and love for one another it follows suit. But the author says, continue in love. He assumes you're already loving one another. You need to continue in love as brothers and sisters. But he wants this to be concrete, not just some, uh, you know, amorphous blob of a feeling. He wants this to take concrete action in our lives. And so he gives us some practical illustrations of what it means to love one another well. And the first illustration is this, hospitality. Continue to show hospitality to strangers. One of the greatest expressions of love is how we welcome people. The front line for training in hospitality in the church, I think, is our homes. It's our community groups. It's the way in which we welcome people into this space, but also into our, the wholeness of our lives. The first church I ever joined was a house church in East Vancouver. Uh, we met in a little home, and week after week, that pastor welcomed me and maybe 12 to 15 other people into his home and demonstrated hospitality again and again and again. And as I think about the people that filled that space, sat on the couch, sat on the chairs, sat on the lawn chairs that we always had to bring in, I remember in those initial months looking at them and thinking, I could never be friends with these people. I mean, they're good for a Bible study, and this is great, but like, we got nothing in common. We don't have any shared interests. I don't know how these relationships would ever be anything more than this Tuesday night in East Van. I remember Leighton. Leighton was always going off about some guy named Bonhoeffer, which in retrospect was really cool. But at the time, I was like, <laughs> why is this dude still talking about Bonhoeffer? I remember my friend Mike, uh, he would always be talking about how he'd go to Valley Village and how he's trying to share his faith at Valley Village. I was like, man, like people are just there trying to get a good bargain on some used clothes. Like, leave them alone. And I remember not really understanding how I fit into this place because I was new in my faith and these people valued different things. They did different things. And yet slowly, these strangers became friends who felt a lot like neighbors, even though we didn't live next door to one another. And after some more time, as we continued to love one another as brothers and sisters, these neighbors became family. I'm still friends with Leighton and Mike 14 years later. 
And what changed was that these quirky different people became my people because we were unified in something so much greater than shared interests or shared values or shared perspectives. We were unified by a common love, the, the love of Christ. And we continued loving one another. And this just looked like gathering in a home where a table was set for anyone who wanted to show up. And where hospitality was shown to each of us in all our quirks and all our differences. And again and again and again, we moved from strangers to friends to neighbors to family. But the challenge of this passage is to not neglect showing hospitality to strangers. You see, the church and our homes is the training ground for learning how to do this. But the author doesn't want us to lose sight of those we do not yet know. A little over five years ago, the Vancouver Foundation released their connection and engagement report. And uh, it, it revealed some difficult things about the landscape of Vancouver. Vancouver is a hard place to make friends. Uh, neighborhood connections are cordial but weak. And participation in the community life was on the decline. And last year, they did a follow-up five-year anniversary survey. And it was bleak. Um, Things remain pretty much in the same state they were five years ago, but people are even less active now in community than they were in almost every community-related event in 2012. So participation in community in Vancouver is on the decline, and yet the same study asked its participants, would you like to meet your neighbors? And 53% of people said yes. So as you... Think about showing hospitality to strangers. I know that can feel like a daunting task. I know that can feel a little nerve wracking, but you got a one in two chance that the person actually wants to meet you. Those are good odds. And more importantly, our city needs it. Our city needs people who do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Rosaria Butterfield just released a book called The Gospel Comes with House Keys, which I think is a great title. And in an interview about her book, she summarized hospitality better than I ever could. And this is what she said. First off, it is not entertainment. Hospitality is about meeting the stranger and welcoming that stranger to become a neighbor. And then knowing that neighbor well enough that if by God's power, he allows for this, that neighbor becomes part of the family of God through repentance and belief. She continues. It has absolutely nothing to do with entertainment. And entertainment's about impressing people and keeping them at arm's length. Hospitality is about opening up your heart and your home just as you are and being willing to invite Jesus into the conversation, not to stop the conversation, but to deepen it. I love that. From stranger to neighbor, from neighbor to family, that's Christian hospitality, but it's only possible if Christ is invited a seat at that table. But expressing our love, it doesn't stop with hospitality. That's one expression of how we continue loving as brothers and sisters. The other way we express hospitality is by remembering those who are suffering. Look at verse three. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. 
Uh, this is a photo of Johnny Cash, you know, visiting uh, in the prison. Yeah, this has been a, a long Christian tradition of going and caring for prisoners. My father-in-law uh, is partnered with uh, an organization in the States called Kairos. They go into a maximum security prison just to build relationships and care for people. Uh, locally, there's a great ministry called M2W2, doing amazing thing in our province's prisons. There's people within our community who serve in that way and in that capacity. And this is good and faithful work, but it's not exactly what this passage is talking about. When the author says, remember those in prison, he's speaking of Christians in the ancient world who were unjustly imprisoned for their faith. And the urban church that he's ministering to would have remembered this because they knew them by rename. What, what, what do you mean, remember them? Of course, I remember my brothers and sisters who are in prison and my brothers and sisters who have lost their lives for the gospel. But the ancient prison system was very different than ours. It was cramped. Damp, dark, and filthy. Prisoners weren't given any clothes and given little to no food. And so they always depended on the hospitality of their family to visit them week after week, day after day, to bring them new clothes, to bring them just a portion of food. And so what the author is actually suggesting is that we should minister to the needs of those who suffer for Christ. Because the suffering they endure is truly our own suffering. Open Doors reports that 215 million Christians experience high levels of persecution in countries on this world watch list. To put that into perspective, one in 12 Christians globally live in a context of extreme to very extreme oppression. Open Doors reports that every month, give or take, 255 Christians are killed, 104 are abducted, 180 Christian women are raped, sexually assaulted, or forced into marriage. Given month, 66 churches are attacked, and 160 Christians are detained without trial or imprisoned. And that's just a snapshot of an average month. For those of us who live in a culture of affluence, who face some forms of persecution for sure, but not this, how much more should we remember those around the world who are suffering for their faith? But this only makes sense if you identify with the church as your family. There's so many matters in the world. There's so many good organizations we could invest to. But I, I think we have to ask, should we maybe think first of our brothers and sisters? Put it this way. If your brother or sister was falsely imprisoned and you like them, let's add that, you would put every energy and effort into helping them in that situation. You would temporarily divert your resources and your time and your thoughts into that matter. The author is saying, look, like you're a part of a family and some of your family suffer. Don't forget them. Don't forget them. Now, I don't know what that means for you specifically, but I want to encourage you to wrestle with this passage. What does it mean for you as a Christian of affluence and comfort to remember those who are suffering around the world in completely different contexts than our own. And I promise you, our leadership team will wrestle with this passage too. And I wanna encourage you to learn about three organizations, Open Doors, Release International, or the Barnabas Fund. Learn, just learn about these organizations, learn about what's going on and consider how you may or may not be able to get involved 
But what I know is right now we can stop and pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are not even able to worship freely like we're doing right now. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we can't begin to comprehend the pressures our brothers and sisters face around the world. And quite frankly, we're not even in tune with it. Sometimes it doesn't even grieve us. It doesn't shock us. And so we pray you would change our hearts, that you would shake away um, numbness, that you would help us to share in the suffering as if it's happening to our own bodies. And that you'd fill us with a deeper love for your church and that you would help us prioritize our family. That you would make us exceedingly generous. That you would show us what it looks like to live out this instruction. Please be with our brothers and sisters. Please comfort them. Please provide for them. For those who will die for their faith, please grant them that mysterious joy of the spirit that accompanies the martyrs in scripture. For those who are losing brothers and sisters, please help, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We can express our love in two very tangible ways, through hospitality and through identifying with the suffering of our family. These are two concrete ways that we love as a church. But the author also wants to address two ways, two roadblocks towards this sort of love. And it's the two vices that come up throughout uh, ethics in the ancient world and ethics today, and in the, they're all over the scriptures, sexual immorality and greed. Look at verse five through six. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's important to remind you that none of these instructions make sense if you do not have awe about who Jesus Christ is. If that's what you're still figuring out, figure that out first before you try to follow any of what I'm about to say. That is your highest priority is, is Jesus really who he said he is? Because if he isn't, don't worry about these passages. But if he is, don't dare to walk in these things alone without the help of his spirit. What this passage shows us is that one mark of the Christian faith throughout the past two millennia is this, an incredibly high view of marriage. That has always marked the Christian faith, a very high view of marriage. You see, this, the author's been clear. It doesn't matter if you're married or you're single. The point is that marriage is the only appropriate context for any sexual activity whatsoever. Those who are married are to honor the marriage bed uh, by being faithful to their spouse. And those who are single are to honor the marriage bed by remaining celibate. When I became a Christian, when I first started reading the scriptures and I'd come across passages like this, I just turned the page. And it wasn't that I didn't understand what it was saying. It was that I did understand what it was saying. and I didn't want to have to change my life. These sort of passages rubbed against my West Coast upbringing and against my sensibilities, and they haunted me. When I started following Jesus, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. 
And I'd never questioned whether living together or what we were doing in our home mattered to God or not. It wasn't even on my radar. And all of a sudden I'm reading this book that seems to care a whole lot about what I do with my body and my time and my relationships. And as I started wrestling with the authority of scripture, do you want to know the truth? The truth is I didn't have the courage to talk about it. I didn't have the courage to go to my community group or my, my house church at the time and say, hey, I've read this passage and I don't think it's just like accurately describing my life and I don't know how to address that gap. Would you guys be willing to walk through that with me? Like I didn't do that at first. And it was because I was afraid. I was afraid they wouldn't understand the complexity of my situation or that they would be judgmental or that they wouldn't show me grace in trying to figure this out. I had one friend who I met on the internet and I don't know if that's correlated, but he brought this up every single time I met up with him. But he was harsh. He was impatient with me. And while I suspected that he was right, he was right in the wrong way and it gave me an out. I just said, well, you know, you're, you're being too harsh. It's hard for me to listen to what you're saying. But on the other hand, my house church never brought it up. Now they knew I was living with my girlfriend. I brought her to, to our gatherings every so often. They knew what was going on and they could have been accused of being too passive, but that's not what was happening. Instead, they simply focused on actively loving me and walking with me and caring for me and encouraging me. They kept pointing me to Jesus and teaching me about the ways of Jesus. And I kept finding myself want to follow Jesus. And the beautiful thing about following Jesus is this. It's not the idea of Jesus that changes you. Jesus changes you. It's not holding the right views of Jesus that changes you. It's the living Lord himself who loves you, who changes you, who walks with you, who even gives you new desires and, a, and an ability to carry them through. And so as I kept fixing my eyes on Jesus, suddenly I found myself with enough confidence and trust in his people to say, this is what's going on. This is the tension I'm feeling. What should I do? And to my surprise, they turned the question around on me. They said, well, what do you want to do? I did not expect that. And I had to sit with that for a while. And I realized I sincerely, as hard as it was, I wanted to follow Jesus, whatever the cost. Because I was enamored with him. I, I saw who he is. I, I felt awe about the way he loves and the way that he pours out his life and the sort of humanity he demonstrated. And that came with making some difficult decisions. But the beautiful thing was I didn't have to walk through those decisions alone or perfectly. Here's my point. There is a massive gap between how our culture addresses sex, sexuality, and marriage and how the scriptures does. But that gap isn't new. That gap existed when this letter was written. This was never trendy in Rome. And so I don't expect you to overcome this gap quickly or easily or to be persuaded immediately by one not so brief tangent in a sermon. But I also don't want you to have to wrestle through this scripture by yourself. I want to invite you to find the courage, the trust to ask someone, here's what's going on. You know, to tell them what's going on here. I'm sleeping with someone or I'm sleeping around or 
I'm looking at porn and I can't seem to stop, or I've had an affair, or I'm ready for a divorce, or I'm thinking of doing any one of these things or several of these things. What should I do? Now, I can't guarantee you that everyone in our community will respond graciously. So here's my invitation. For those of you who someone might come to you and tell you something about their life that is maybe shocking or surprising and not in alignment with the ways of Jesus, I want to challenge you to be patient and gracious. Knowing that everyone has different struggles and everyone has a different way of discovering how God will meet them in that moment. But I want to challenge you to receive people and to love them before you instruct them and try to fix them. The Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of fixing his people. But he needs people who are going to show the graciousness and the gentleness and yet the challenge of his presence in that midst. But I also want to challenge those of you who might have something to share to take the risk. And if it doesn't go well, to continue in love by challenging that person and saying, hey, I opened up about this and I left feeling like you didn't hear me or you judged me or you, you weren't willing to walk with me in this and help me figure this out. So I want to challenge you both to receive well, but also to share well. But here's another thing I can tell you. Our culture has helped us in regards to sex and has harmed us in regards to sex. Our culture, our culture has helped because it's, it's removed a ton of stigma. 50 years ago, I get fired for everything I've just said. You didn't talk about this sort of stuff in public. So our culture has helped us in that regard. But it's harmed us because it's created a myth that your highest identity is your sexual identity. And you can't live a life of true flourishing unless you're sexually active. And that myth comes with some false... Uh, ideas. Our cultural moment says it's better to have sex with a few people before marriage so you get some experience under your belt, or at least with the person you're planning on marriage to make sure you're sexually compatible. And at this point, all I can do is speak from firsthand experience and tell you that all of my sexual experience prior to marriage did not prepare me adequately or well enough for, the, for sex within the context of marriage. Good sex doesn't happen through practice. Good sex happens through an ongoing commitment, mutual trust, and patience. That's why scripture says you need to keep this in the context of marriage. But the truth is, you're not made for sex. That is not why God made the heavens and the earth and said it is very good when he made you. The first time God said something wasn't good in creation was when humanity was alone. We were made for relationships where we can continue loving one another as brothers and sisters. I want to tell you, you can live a fulfilled and good life without ever having sex. You can't. I've met people who've done it. Until the modern era, the highest form of love, it wasn't romantic love. It was the love found in friendship. To the ancients, says C.S. Lewis, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves. The crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world in comparison ignores it. Lewis, in his book, Four Loves, argues that next to the self-sacrificing love of Jesus, the greatest gift God has for creation is that of friendship. The love of true friendship is a higher and more satisfying love than romantic love. You may be single your whole life and not by choice. You may never experience sex or may never experience sex again. 
But you don't have to believe the lie that you'll somehow have lived an incomplete life. You're not excluded from the depths and beauty of love. You're not. You're not excluded from experiencing the benefits of a deep, meaningful, committed relationship that can all be found in the context of a friendship. Because the love that ultimately binds a marriage together is not erotic love, it's the love of friendship. And the love that ultimately binds us together as Christians in all kinds of relationships is the love of Christ as we continue loving one another as brothers and sisters. And so I wanna be really clear, if you're single, that is not a lesser station in life. You're not excluded from love. You're not gonna miss out. And if you're married as good and as beautiful as it is, this is not the pinnacle of knowing God's love. And you need to be very careful about how you talk about it. It is one way of demonstrating how God loves his church. And singleness is another. And both of us at the end of the day are unified in our various stations through a better love the love of Jesus that changes the way we love one another and forms the friendships in this room. So with all that, if you're struggling in this area, all I can do is offer you an invitation to share that struggle with us, to invite some people you trust into that journey and to walk alongside us as we pursue Jesus together. But the author knows like some people are going, I got that. So he wants to make all of us uncomfortable, so he brings up greed next. So look at verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money because more money is more problems. And <laughs> be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A few years ago, uh, researchers conducted this survey where they asked people who made in between 30 and 50K a year, how much do you need to make a year in order to be content and not worry about money anymore. And they said $74,000 by and large, like I would be happy as a clam. And since researchers are sneaky, uh, they went to people who made 70,000 to 100K and said, well, what would it take for you to be content with what you have to never feel like you need money again? And those people said, well, you know, if I was making 100 to 140K, I'd be happy, I'd be content. I would have my bills paid, I wouldn't be worried. So they went to people you made 100 to 140K and said, you know, what would it make? What would you need to make? And on and on it went into the millions. The right amount of money was always around the elusive corner. One commentator wrote, no exhortation is more appropriate for modern people living in an affluent society. For many, listen to this, for many, discontent has become a habit. They live in dissatisfaction with what they have and in vain anticipation of the next purchase. You see, the love of money, it includes the accumulation of money, a feeling like you always need more before you can actually arrive or be content. But the love of money also includes the use of money, feeling like money is gonna be the thing that can buy your happiness and your well-being, or the, the, the thing that's gonna secure you in the future. But rather than offer us different disciplines of what we could do in our use of money, which scripture has loads of suggestions. The, uh, the author is first concerned that we have a different disposition. Be content. Content with not what will be around the corner, but content now in this moment of plenty or lack in wealth or in poverty. Content because God has said to us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
I know some of you have done very well in the stock market. And wouldn't that be a nice promise? Especially before 2008, your investments saying, I will never leave you or forsake you, your retirement. Money, wealth, it can never make a promise like that. You can't even carry it with you into eternity. And so what the author wants us to remember, he's not saying, oh, money doesn't matter. You shouldn't make money. Like, of course you need to make money and pay your bills. And of course that factors into your general well-being. Like he's not ignoring that, but he's saying it'll never produce contentment. Nothing in this world will. The only true contentment is the God who is with you. The God who will never leave you. The God who will never forsake you. And if you live from that place, money suddenly becomes something different. It's not just something you use for your own benefit. It is a channel by which you can bless and love others. And in light of all of these different instructions, then all these different how-tos, the author gives us this capstone verse. We say with confidence then, in light of all of this, we say in confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So I created a liturgy for us to see why he's put this here, for us to try to understand why these words are comforting in light of everything he said. So respond with me. Show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Keep your, love, your life free from the love of money. What can mere mortals do to us? Do you understand the awe in that passage? The Lord, the God of the universe, the one who made all things, descends in such a way into our present conditions not to be served, but to serve, to be our helper. The God of the universe is your helper. He will walk with you in these various challenges. I realize one of these instructions has definitely messed with you, if not all of them. You can't do it yourself. And the good news is the Lord is your helper. He wants to walk with you in his ways toward true human flourishing. You don't have to be afraid about addressing this stuff. You don't have to be afraid about the costs, even though it might be challenging, because the Lord is your helper. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And yet the author still has one more instruction for us. We're not off the hook yet. Look at verse seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Remember your leaders. Imitate your leaders. Verse 17 says, obey and submit to your leaders. I feel super comfortable right now. <laughs> I will say this. Please remember me. Please remember me. I... I I need your prayers more than you probably realize. At first, when I became a minister and people were like, this is like the hardest thing you're going to do. If you can do anything else, 
do that. I was like, ah, it won't be that hard. It's really hard. And, and I wish that it, it wasn't, but at the same time, like I'm grateful for the challenge, but I need your prayers. Preston needs your prayers, but it doesn't stop there. Like remember our leadership team, they need your prayers. Remember your community group leader, they need your prayers. The greatest thing you could do for me is to pray for me on a regular basis, that I might serve you well and serve our church well. I, I need that. I don't know how I could continue without that, except by the grace of God. But let me offer you a framework for deciding whether a leader is worthy of remembering and whether you should imitate their way of life. I just want to offer you two really quick things. The first is this. You can know a leader is worthy of imitation if they present to you the word of God purely, or at least as close to purely as possible. He says, remember your leaders who delivered to you the word of God. And then he warns the church not to be carried away by strange teachings. Leaders worthy of imitation are not trying to innovate around the scriptures. They're not going to try to find some new message that you haven't heard. They're waiters. They're, they're not chefs. Do you understand that? A preacher is a waiter. He's not a chef. She's a waiter. She's not a chef. They're offering you the message that has been de delivered once and for all time. But how can you know if a leader is doing that? Well, you too have to become acquainted with the scriptures. At the very least, I hope after a sermon, you go and you look at the passage and you consider what I said and you discern if what I've said is in alignment with the scriptures. And I hope that you become familiar enough with the scriptures that you can listen to teaching and be like, that is not in alignment with the ways of Jesus. We're not doing anything new here. I'm a waiter. I'm doing my best to offer you the meal without dropping it on the floor. But there's a specific way that leaders are called to handle the scriptures with grace, to strengthen you with grace. So as challenging as the scriptures may be, as difficult as they may be, as the way that they might exhort you at times, is the leader's aim in proclaiming the word to strengthen you with grace, to relieve you from that great pressure and burden of feeling like you need to perform for God and to receive the gift of his son, the power of his spirit who works in and through you. Does the leader you're submitting to anchor you in grace, imperfectly so, but anchor you in the grace of the gospel rather than in law or commands or moralism? But second, you know if someone's worthy of imitating because their life is appealing, it's congruent with the message they proclaim. It might, they might not be perfect, but they're trying to live it out. And I realize that's difficult because our church is getting to a size where you all can't know me. And, and so how do you know if I'm walking in alignment with the message? And hopefully you know someone who knows me, or you, hopefully the, the conduct that you least see of me in public is in alignment with the message. If it's not, talk to our people's ward and call me out. I'm happy for you to do that. But let me share a brief story about that house church I was a part of. Kyle, the pastor of 12 to 15 people, one day called me up and said, hey, I want to take you uh, to my friend's house to watch a hockey game. I'll pick you up, take you home. What do you say? I was, great. I'm Canadian, I like hockey. And so we went and we watched the Canucks lose and uh, then they drove me home and I got dropped off and my phone rang and it was Kyle and I said, what's up? And he said, look, on the drive home, I was criticizing my friend's apartment about how it's small and that was wrong of me. I don't wanna be the sort of person who criticizes my friends, let alone their apartments. I don't wanna be the sort of person that speaks differently behind someone's back than I would to their face. And so I want to apologize to you because that, that's a poor example of the Christian faith. 
And like a true West Coaster, I said, don't worry about it. I didn't say, I forgive you, but you know, don't worry about it. I said, what's the big deal? And I, I hung up the phone. And I remember thinking, well, that was odd. Like, why, why is he making this big deal of this thing? And then it, like, I can't shake it still to this day. Like, I want to be like that. I want that sort of life. The sort of life that loves someone so much that even the most minor offense is egregious. I want to love people in such a way that I make those phone calls and I reach out to people and I say, I got it wrong. And any of you who've been here long enough, you've seen me do that at least a handful, if not more than a handful of times. So if you're trying to discern if a leader is worthy of imitating, a leader's worthy of following, I can't, I can't commend myself to you. I, I hope the ministry commends itself to you. But I would say, analyze leaders this way. Do they honor the word of God? Do they strengthen you with grace? And what you can perceive of their life, is it in alignment with the message they proclaim? They might be imperfect, but are they, they at least modeling the ways in an appealing way. But the point that anchors every single one of these multifaceted instructions together is verse eight. I love verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. That's the good news. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus hasn't changed. His grace hasn't changed. And so if we're going to remember our leaders, let's start by remembering the pioneer of our faith, Jesus. He fulfilled all of this. Jesus continued loving his brothers and sisters. The Gospel of John says that he loved them to the very end. He loved them all the way to the cross. Jesus showed remarkable hospitality to strangers. There was always more room at the table, but the most remarkable demonstration was on the cross where he welcomed a thief into paradise. Jesus held the marriage bed in honor, both in his teaching and his conduct, dying single and celibate. Jesus kept his life free from the love of money. He said the son of man has no place to lay his head. He wasn't worried about wealth because his, his desire was to do the will of his father. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life for us, the life that we all fall short of living. And then on the cross, he was forsaken. We rejected him. We said, we, we, we don't want this. And he accepted it because mysteriously, as he was forsaken, we were accepted. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was so that we can now cry out, God will never leave or forsake us. Jesus experienced the curse. Jesus experienced the judgment. Jesus experienced the consequences of sin so that we could be forgiven and received into this kingdom freely. He's done it all for us. He's lived the perfect life for us. So your life, it can express how Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forget forever. And if it doesn't, do you want to know what the good news is? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll continue loving you. He'll continue identifying with your struggles. He'll remember you. He honors marriage, especially the marriage between him and his bride, the church. And if this evokes awe, this unchanging Jesus is the God who is with us, walking with us. This way of life suddenly becomes an exciting possibility rather than a burden. But don't think that you have to live this life to find your place in his kingdom. 
He wants you to receive that freely as a gift so that you can suddenly have the awe-filled eyes to see what a good life he's describing indeed.